John Landegger at 720 WGN on this day in history. Al Capone was sentenced to uh, prison for tax evasion. So I say, well, let's talk about Al Capone for an hour. Who do I need to do that? Well, that would be the man who writes a book about everything, the man who writes a book about every 90 seconds. <laughs> that would be William Hazelgrove. William, welcome back to WGN. Uh, thanks for having me again. Yeah. So, you know, I had all this stuff prepared. And then I see that your book, one of your many fantastic books, by the way, I might add, Capone Capone and the 1933 World's Fair, The End of the Gangster Era in Chicago, a historical look at Chicago during the darkest days of the Depression, the Great Depression, the story of Chicago fighting the hold that organized crime had on the city to be able to put on the 1933 World's Fair. Now, you know, there's a bunch of well-known Al Capone stuff floating around Chicago for decades. I did not know that there was such a conflict uh, around the 1933 World's Fair. Could you expound on that a bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, just like your opening, it starts with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, right? So, yeah. so seven guys with Bugs Malone get gunned down. And Chicago, by the way, these World's Fairs, they, they're, they're in process for 10 years before. So Chicago's mm. getting up for this thing. And everybody's like, you're crazy, because this is the worst year of the Great Depression. But Chicago being Chicago's like, ah, we're going to do it. So the St. Valentine's Day massacre happens, and the newspapers had a sort of a test agreement not to put gory photos on the front pages. Well, they violated it, and they plastered it all over the country. So it was like this. Come to Chicago, we're having a World's <laughs> Fair. Oh, by the way, you know, we have Al Capone, who's just mowing down cops, mowing down gangsters, and here's the gory photos. So what people realized quickly was that you had to get rid of this guy, or nobody was going to come to the fair. And so it really became a financial decision. I mean, you know, yes, yes, all the violence and mayhem and all, all that. But, you know, Capone, yeah, I'm sure we'll jump into this, yeah. Capone was supplying a need, right? We had prohibition. Yes, yes, and yes. People, yep. people still wanted to drink, and Chicago had more speakeasies anywhere else. And Capone had a great quote. He said, you know, down in the loop, they call it bootlegging. On the North Shore, they call it hospitality. I'm just supplying <laughs> a need. <laughs> that is a great quote. And he's right. Yes. He was right about that anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so how do they resolve this? Well, okay, so they're, they're going to have this fair, and they, they, they realize they have to get rid of him somehow. Now, I'm sure all your listeners have seen the movie The Untouchables. Oh, yeah. Movie, Kevin Costner, you know, yeah. Elliot Ness, all that. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, the problem is it's, it's, it's just not true. Um, really what happened is, you know, Ness was a treasury man, right? He, he, was, he was his treasury man. But there was no real untouchables. Um, that really came about. Um, <laughs> Ness, Ness, after the whole you know prohibition thing, became a drunk. Tried to write a book. Uh, he couldn't finish the book. Guy named Oscar Thayer finished it for him. He added the untouchables. Okay, that whole story. Yeah. He now made a great movie on it. So the question is, well, who really got Capone? Well, it was six guys called the Secret Six. Wait a minute. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. That's a good place just to pause. The Secret Six. The Secret Six. And also, I just want to mention that the term untouchable, if I'm correct, came from the fact that uh, allegedly Elliot Ness and his men could not be bought. So they were 
untouchable. More with William Hazelgrove and Al Capone next on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Uh, that's the scene from The Untouchables where uh, Al Capone beats one of his henchmen over the head with a bat. Thought I'd just throw that in there. Uh, John Landecker at 720 WGN, 18 minutes after 8, talking to William Hazelgrove, author of a whole bunch of books, and one including the 1933 World's Fair and the end of the gangster era, and Al Capone, and what the city had to do to put on the World's Fair, because bad PR, you know, bad press, Capone. So we left off with me asking how they got rid of him, and you talking about the Secret Six. Yeah, so, now this, yeah. Yes, this is what most of your listeners don't know, because they've all yeah. seen the untouchable story. Right. Uh, in fact, it was six Chicago millionaires who got rid of them, and they banded together, and they created a secret police force. And the secret police force did things like they would take somebody who's going to testify against Capone and ship them down to South America. You know, oh, my God, a witness protection program, right? Well, this was one of the first. And or they had their own gangsters who we would today call informants, you know, who would get information on Capone's operation. And, and then they had their own speakeasies and, you know, where they sold booze and they got more information. And then they, they studied Capone's operation. And Capone was a smart man. I mean, he really was. He had a huge operation. He not only bottled uh, booze, he bottled milk. And by the way, for your listeners. Oh, Yeah. If you oh, check yeah. the date on your milk, okay, <laughs> that was Al Capone because he had a spoilage problem, so he started dating the milk, and that spread out and became industry standard. That is so, such a great trivial po- point that Al Capone is responsible for the exp- expiration date on milk. That's just yeah, crazy. And his, yeah. And his, bro- his brother invented his own soda pop, Green River. You probably heard of that. Oh, right? sure. You betcha. Yeah. So- so, so anyway, so these three guys are the six. Uh, we know three of the uh, three of the secret six was Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears, Robert McCormick, publisher of Chicago Tribune. Oh man! And um, a guy named Jake Lingle uh, worked for the Commerce Commission. So after that, we aren't quite sure. A lot of guys have them death, but I, I, I was part of the secret six, and they're like, "Well, we got about the secret twelve now." So we know they're not all the secret six, but. These are the guys who, and again, your listeners know this, yeah. who really nailed Capone for tax evasion. Right. You know, which is the only thing, you know, again, that sounds crazy, right? I mean, the fact that you had to make, uh, you know, $5,000 in, you know, 1931 to just even be taxed. Um, and here's Capone who made hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, of course, he, he says, well, I'll make a deal. Um, I'll go to jail for two years for hundred grand. You know, I didn't pay tax on it. And so he goes up for the deal. A guy named Judge Wilkerson says, no, no deal. And Capone, you know, is just thrown away. Well, Capone does it's what he always does. He bribes the jury. And then, <laughs> okay, and then they find out, and they switch the jury on him, you know, at the last minute. And they are not... Guys who were enamored with Capone. Capone had a $50,000 ring on his finger. He always had a white yeah. fedora. Very right. flashy guy. Um, these were downstate guys who were like farmers. And so they were like, no, this guy's evil. We're going to put him away. And they sent him away for 11 years for tax evasion. So on October 17th, 1931, he was sentenced to 11 years. The, right. the World's Fair didn't open until 1933. So. That's right. So this 
sentence was the pivotal point that allowed them to go forward with the World's Fair? If I'm, am I putting that together correctly? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because they really didn't believe. And again, there's so uh, much crap in World's Fairs. Yeah. And this fair, this fair was called the Century of Progress. Right. It, it was really supposed to be a history fair, but it changed to that. So they were investing all this money that they just didn't have, really, into this fair. And it, looked, it was looking like it'd be a disaster. And, you know, Cabone's guys are just mowing all these people down. And so, you know, this was really, really the beginning of the end for Capone. You know, uh, in your book and some of the other things that I've seen, yes, those, the Secret Six and the government and certain law enforcement agencies were out to get Capone. But on the other hand, as far as I understand, he was relatively popular with the general public, maybe even a sort of a Michael Jordan popularity. Is that possible? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you have to re- I always tell people when I give this talk on Capone. You have to rethink the way you think of Capone. People yeah. do not view him the way we view him. We view him as this murdering gangster. People didn't view him like that. They view him like a celebrity. When you look at old films of him going to court, he's mobbed, okay? I mean, he, he's, just, he's just mobbed. And this is because, you know, he, a lot of times he would give money to people. I can't tell you how many times I've been in Barnes & Noble selling these books, and they always just sell out. People come in and go, you know, Al Capone is a great guy. He, he mean, wait a minute. Terrible. Wait a minute. You're at Barnes & Noble, right. and you're selling your book, and people are still right. coming up to you telling you that Al Capone's a great guy? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. God. So, I'll have, I mean, I've had more people come up and say, you know, he saved my family. Or, you know, my father, my father he saved my father's family. And, and what it is is Capone, uh, Chicago was broke, okay? So Chicago had no money to help anybody during the Great Depression. Capone mm. opened up all these soup kitchens all over the South Side. Wow. And everybody knew who was behind it. And, and you know, and Capone would just you'd be walking down the street and see somebody and give him $100. And, and everybody worked for Capone. I mean, he had tons of people on the payroll. I can't tell you how many people come up to me also and say, yeah, I made bathtub gin during the Great Depression, you know. I mean, this is just something that people did. But this perception we have of just this murdering guy, that was not the perception. I mean, think about this, John. Today, if you went to somebody and said, bang, bang, Chicago, what would they say? And you Al know, Capone. Desert Island, they'd say, Al Capone, of course. Right. Before the Internet. Okay, he understood. Huh. He understood mass media very early, very early. And he always tried to get good press. You know, and so, 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 you know, this, this is something hard for us to get our head around. But at this time, he was a celebrity. I always see pictures of him being taken. A lot of them in the courtroom with the judge. You know, everybody <laughs> wants a picture with Capone. That is crazy. So when you're at one of these Bards and Noble appearances, some guy who comes up to you and tells you about his mother dating Capone? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's a great story. So I'm, I'm at, you know, I'm in Barnes & Noble. This guy comes up and he goes, yeah, um, yeah, my mom used to date Capone. <laughs> Older gentleman. And I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, she, she was a pretty hot number. I go, oh, I see. He goes, uh, yeah, they got in a big fight, though. I said, oh, what happened? He goes, well, these goons came and picked me up and took me to this bar. And this big, fat Italian guy slapped me around. I said, well, who was that? He goes, that was Al Capone. And I go, well, what was he like? He goes, oh, he's a nice guy, nice guy. So, I mean, you know, where do you go with that, right? I mean, So this Al, is, this is... Al, Cap- Al Capone slapped this kid around? Yeah, he slapped this kid around. <laughs> and then I said to him later, I said, well, 
what do you think of Al? And he thought, oh, he's a nice guy, you know. And, I mean, I, I've talked to so many people who, you know, bumped into him. I talked to another person, a woman, whose husband was his dentist. And she said that, oh, okay. All right, so what would happen is Capone, right, everybody be in the waiting room. Capone would come in and with his, you know, henchmen, goons, and yeah. they'd walk right to the waiting room, pull whoever's in the chair out, all right? Capone would sit down. The guy would take out his gun, you know, his bodyguard, put it out, put it on the table, and then the dentist would start to work, and the dentist would say, this is going to hurt, and then the bodyguard would say, this is going to hurt to Capone, and then the, the dentist would do his work, and then when he was done, they left with a big wad of money in an envelope, and then they left. Wow. Didn't even have to make an appointment. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. And, I mean, here's the thing. A lot of people, again, Capone sort of exported this image of a, a believe it or not, a sort of family guy, guys who like, yeah. you know, big meals and things right. like that. And, you know, he, he did talk about getting out of the rackets, but he said, once you're in, you're in. I mean, here's a guy who ran Chicago from the Lexington Hotel, had a steel back chair so he could be assessed, had also an armor-plated uh, Cadillac, right? And, you yeah. know, who, who knew he always had to keep moving. He could never stay on his, the first floor of his home in Cicero because somebody might come by, you know, and rake his home with a Tommy gun. Hey, William, well, it's, uh, can I butt in here? Yeah, John? yeah, sure. We've got a couple of minutes. Do it. William, quick question. You know, I'm struck by what you say about uh, Capone's smarts, and I have read that if he had not had a life of crime, he could have done just about anything. Yeah, he he ran a huge operation. Uh, not only did he have to bring in all this alcohol, I mean, he had... Uh, rum runners coming in. He had planes coming in. He then had to distribute it. And he had this monstrous distribution network where all this booze had to go to all these different places. Monies had to be collected. I mean, he was a very, very smart businessman. And he never took payment. He was, he was smart enough to never, you could never connect huh. him to the money. All right. Yet, yet huh. He had this lavish lifestyle. Yeah. He moved out of the business. You know, but, you know, so, so, yeah, he he was smart. You know, he was he was able. He was this poor kid from Brooklyn. Right. And yeah. he ended up moving to Chicago and moving in very quickly. And, you know, he was brutal. He, he did eliminate the competition. And, you know, the same Valentine's Day massacre was really his mistake. Right. You know, because that made it the pre the president of the United States became aware of the problem and they realized then that, you know, it had gotten out of hand. And that really came about because of that Thompson machine gun, which was, you know, General Thompson, World War One, wanted to kill Germans quicker, so he invented this gun. He called it the Annihilator. And you know, when Capone's guys started using they just tore people to pieces. And so those crime scene photos, which are in the Chicago History Museum I've seen Whoa. Those are the ones that were splattered all over the pages, so to yeah. speak. Wow. And, and that's, that really changed public perception. You think he would have known where our interest rates are going here in the country? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody seems to know. <laughs> I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight... 
for the first time. That vault is going to be open live. Now what, if anything, that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together. <laughs> it seems, at least up to now that we've struck out with the vault, I'm disappointed about that, as I'm sure you are. Oh, yes, we certainly are. Uh, 720 WGN 836 with John Landecker talking with author William Hazelgrove, who's got a great book called Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair. You know, we've referenced the Lexington Hotel, uh, which is at, was at 2135 South Michigan. And um, I guess you would say that that's where Capone did a lot, oversaw most of his comings and goings and dealings. Would you say that's right? Oh, absolutely. You yes. know, and, uh, and, you know, going back to that clip uh, you were just playing, Gerardo Rivera, um, it, it, this is a, a fascinating story. Um, actually, I met a guy named Alan Grafman, who actually was the producer of that, and uh, uh, we've, we've been working together on, on something to do with the movie with the book. But the reason Gerardo Her- did that was because, okay, Capone gets arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets sent to the Atlantic Penitentiary, but he has all these amenities, you know, all this furniture and stuff around it. People get mad. So they have him sent to Alcatraz. And Alcatraz is solitary confinement, no talking. Obviously, you can't escape. And Capone has syphilis, right? And syphilis, untreated, comes back in about 20, 30 years and starts to drive you insane. And so Capone starts to lose his memory. And what what knowledge does he lose? He he forgets where he has hidden all his money. Oh man! Right? Yeah. And so, to, so, so, Geraldo was convinced that money yeah. was in that vault. Oh yeah. And and to this day, you know, the legend of Al Capone's money is still out there. You know, I was working nights at a different radio station at that time, and I did a remote from the Lexington Hotel that night when Geraldo Rivera did his TV broadcast and opened the vault and found right. absolutely nothing. Maybe a empty bottle and a, I don't know. Some, like a Coke can or something. Yeah, I mean, it was just, there was absolutely nothing in there. Although it was very interesting when I was walking around the Lexington hotel, you'd go into like what could have been, I guess, like a ballroom, a large ballroom. And right. there were pockmarked walls where they had taken, I'm assuming they're Tommy guns and just blasted the heck out of the the walls in the hotel. It was yeah. uh, it was really something, you know. Yeah. You you mentioned the Saint Valentine's Day massacre, and that was a game changer for Capone's image. But he was never really convicted of that, was he? No, he wasn't. Yeah. Um, Machine Gun Kelly was sort of the guy who was held up who organized it, and the the lore is that Capone was mad as hell that he did this because it, it really heated, heated up things. And, you know, these were very desperate times. I think it's hard for people to understand, you know, what, what these times were. You know, when the fair opened, Judy Garland was there. Now, you think, oh, yeah. oh, Judy Garland. But she wasn't famous at all. She was there with her mother, all right? And they had this horrible singing and dancing act, her words, not mine. And, and so she gets on a fight with her mother. And it's very hot. And the fair opens, and it's like 100 degrees. So she goes and leaves the fair and goes to the Biograph Theater. Why? Because it's air-conditioned. She goes in, but in the lobby, she sees a man who she thinks she recognizes. So it's a mister, thinking it's a movie star. Can I have your autograph? He goes, sure, little lady. Gives it to her. Two hours later, he's shot dead in the alley. John Dillinger. Oh, my gosh. Wow. 
Never heard and that it, story. Oh, yeah. And this is just, I mean, these are, all right, so you, you've heard of Sally Rand, right? Oh, I yes, mean, the, sure the, the fan dancer. Yeah, right. the fan dancer. She's a hillbilly who bombed out in Hollywood. Uh, Cecil B. the Mills made some silent movies. But when talkies came with Al Jolson and all that, she bombed out because she had a, a lisp and an accent. Well, anyway, she ends up trying to audition for the World's Fair. And they go, sorry, we don't need you. So what she do? She gets a, a white horse. She gets a boat. Right. Now, what you have to know is that the World's Fair is on what we call Norley Island today. Okay, yes. So it's not actually on. So this was great for the fair because they could do anything they wanted. All right. Well, so Sally Rand gets this boat, the horse, has nothing on but this white makeup, takes it around the back to a yacht landing. All right. Then the opening night of the fair, all the mucky mucks are there around a the stage. Yep. Sally yep. Rand rides through the fairgrounds up onto the stage <laughs> horse rears up people take her oh my god it's the world's fair naked woman on a white horse uh, they immediately arrest her and then they immediately hire her she becomes and this is hard to believe the number one financial attraction of the fair john she literally took the fair from the red into the black and she would she would do her Sally Rand fan dance. That was the her act, was it not? Minutes. Right, yeah. It's it's only yeah. seventeen minutes. And you think, well, why did people go to see this? I'll tell you why. It's under a blue light. It was under so classical music. People could escape the depression for a little bit. Yeah. Men and women. I mean, we yeah. could escape into our television every night. People couldn't yeah. do that. But they, they could go see this. And she became Instantly famous, world famous, and took her career 40 years all the way up to the Apollo astronauts, where she danced for them at the opening of the Houston Coliseum. I, uh, uh, yeah, I, that made a scene in, um, I think the movie was The Right Stuff. The Right Stuff, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, right. You know, mentioning the Depression and, and Al Capone and, and how smart he was. I mean, he was, you mentioned earlier that he was opening soup kitchens around oh, yeah. Chicago. And, you know, that was a time, uh, as I understand it anyway, during the Depression, that people were very appreciative of folks who, I guess for lack of a better term, ran a charity like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he would give uh, money to people he would see on the street. Yeah. Uh, he was known to do that. And he really did employ lots of people. Another gentleman who came into Barnes and Noble said, "You know, Al Capone saved my family." And I said, "Well, what house? How so?" He goes, "Well, my dad was a welder, and Al Capone needed people to weld his stills. So all of a sudden, Jeez. this big dark car would pull up to the front of our house. Two guys got and go, "We need you," and they take my dad away, and he'd go weld all these stills, and then they could bring him back. But he, 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 the guy did say it became very nerve wracking for his father when these guys would show up and just take him away. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but no, the, the, the truth is that Capone had a code. All right. He, he did. I mean, he, you know, and the violence was re- restricted mostly to between the gangs, between yes. the Malone's gang yeah. and his. So, yeah. so, you know, and he was very media savvy. He would give out lots of interviews. He, you know, he gave lots of money to politicians, obviously. Oh. He, uh. You know, he, he, he bought a lot of people off. Um, you know, Robert McCormick was very reluctant to get into the Secret Six. 
and it really was a guy named Jake Lingle who got him in. Jake Lingle was a mob reporter, all right, for the Tribune. Yes. And, and so he 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 came out. He was going to go play the races. He was walking. You know, at that time, he went down to where Billy Goat's Tavern is, and he's walking to the train. He gets shot in the back of the head and killed. And so McCormick said, that's it. Capone's trying to muzzle the press. Yeah. I'm going after him, too. Right. And McCormick owned the Tribune, which, of course, was the press. So exactly. it obviously... Uh, changed his mind about getting Capone out of the way and letting the 1933 World's Fair in. Well, <clears throat> William, I want to thank you so much for taking time tonight to be with us here at 720 WGN. Wow, what some amazing, just some amazing things. Maybe they're trivial, but the idea that Al Capone is responsible for the expiration date on milk on milk uh, containers just blows my mind. I mean... Yeah. Uh, that's uh, an unknown living legacy. I bet you when they did the Capone tours, do they still do Capone tours? I mean, they used yeah, to have. Yeah, a, yeah they do. Yeah. They, still, they still have those tours that go all over the city. Yeah, yeah. I bet they don't bring, mention that, or maybe they do. I don't know. I've never taken yeah. the Capone tour. Uh, by the way, if you want to find out more about uh, Al Capone, and obviously you can tell that William Heligrove knows what he's talking about, uh, check out the book. And where did I put the title of the book? What's the title oh, of the book? Found in the 1933 World's <laughs> Fair. Yeah, or go to yeah. my website, williamhazelgrove.com, or just put in Al Capone, World's Fair. You know, all your listeners all probably read, you know, Eric Larson's book, Devil in the White City, which is yes. one reason I wrote this book, because yeah. I thought, wow, you know, this fair is amazing. And then I realized, wow, there was a second fair. Forty years later, Chicago yeah. did it again. Yeah. Thank you very much. All the best to you, William. Thanks for being with us. John Landegger at 720 WGN. On this day in history, Al Capone was sentenced to uh, prison for tax evasion. So I say, well, let's talk about Al Capone for an hour. Who do I need to do that? Well, that would be the man who writes a book about everything, the man who writes a book about every 90 seconds. <laughs> that would be William Hazelgrove. William, welcome back to WGN. Ah, thanks for having me again. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I had all this stuff prepared, and then I see that your book, one of your many fantastic books, by the way, I might add, Capone Capone and the 1933 World's Fair, The End of the Gangster Era in Chicago, A Historical Look at Chicago During the Darkest Days of the Depression, the Great Depression, the story of Chicago fighting the hold that organized crime had on the city to be able to put on... The 1933 World's Fair. Now, you know, there's a bunch of well-known Al Capone stuff floating around Chicago for decades. I did not know that there was such a conflict uh, around the 1933 World's Fair. Could you expound on that a bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, just like your opening, it starts with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, right? So, yeah. so seven guys with Bugs Malone get gunned down. And Chicago, by the way, these World's Fairs, they, they're, they're in process for 10 years before. So Chicago's mm. getting up for this thing. And everybody's like, you're crazy, because this is the worst year of the Great Depression. But Chicago being Chicago's like, ah, we're going to do it. So the St. Valentine's Day Massacre happens, and the newspapers had a sort of a test agreement not to put gory photos on the front pages. Well, they violated it, and they plastered it all over the country. So it was like this. 
Come to Chicago or have a World's <laughs> Fair. Oh, by the way, you know, we have Al Capone who's just mowing down cops, mowing down gangsters, and here's the gory photos. So what people realized quickly was that you had to get rid of this guy or nobody was going to come to the fair. And so it really became a financial decision. I mean, you know, yes, yes, all the violence and mayhem and all, all that. But, you know, Capone, you know, I'm sure we'll jump into this, yeah. Capone was supplying a need, right? We had prohibition. Yes, yes, yes. People, yep. people still wanted to drink. And Chicago had more speakeasies than anywhere else. And Capone had a great quote. He said, you know, down in the loop, they call it bootlegging. On the North Shore, they call it hospitality. I'm just supplying a need. <laughs> That is a great quote, and he's right. Yes. He was right about that, anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so how do they resolve this? Well, okay, so they're, they're going to have this fair, and they, they, they realize they have to get rid of him somehow. Now, I'm sure all your listeners have seen the movie The Untouchables. Oh, yeah. Movie, Kevin Costner, you know, yeah. Elliot Ness, all that. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, the problem is, it's, it's, it's just not true. Um, really what happened is, you know, Ness was a treasury man, right? He, he was, he was his treasury man, but there was no real untouchables. Um, that really came about, um, <laughs> Ness, Ness after the whole, you know, prohibition thing became a drunk, tried to write a book. Uh, he couldn't finish the book. Guy named Oscar Thayer finished it for him. He added the Untouchables. Okay, that whole story. Yeah. Now made a great movie on that. So the question is, well, who really got Capone? Well, it was six guys called the Secret Six. Wait a minute. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. That's a good place just to pause. The okay. Secret Six. The Secret Six. And also, I just want to mention that the term Untouchable, if I'm correct, came from the fact that uh, allegedly Elliot Ness and his men could not be bought. So they were exactly. un, untouchable. More with William Hazelgrove and Al Capone next on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Uh, that's the scene from The Untouchables where uh, Al Capone beats one of his henchmen over the head with a bat. Thought I'd just throw that in there. Uh, John Landecker at 720 WGN, 18 minutes after 8, talking to William Hazelgrove, author of a whole bunch of books, and one including the 1933 World's Fair and the end of the gangster era, and Al Capone, and what the city had to do to put on the World's Fair, because bad PR, you know, bad press, Capone. So we left off with me asking how they got rid of him, and you talking about the secret six. Yeah, so, now this, yeah. Yes, this is what most of your listeners don't know, because they've all yeah. seen the untouchable story. Right. Uh, in fact, it was six Chicago millionaires who got rid of them, and they banded together, and they created a secret police force. And the secret police force did things like they would take somebody who's going to testify against Capone and ship them down to South America. You know, oh, my God, a witness protection program, right? Well, this was one of the first. And or they had their own gangsters who we would today call informants, you know, who would get information on Capone's operation. And, and then they had their own speakeasies and, you know, where they sell booze and they got more information. And then they, they studied Capone's operation. And Capone was a smart man. I mean, he really was. He had a huge operation. He not only bottled uh, booze, he bottled milk. And by the way, for your listeners. Oh, yeah. 
If you oh, check yeah. the date on your milk, okay, <laughs> that was Al Capone because he had a spoilage problem, so he started dating the milk, and that spread out and became an industry standard. That is so, such a great trivial po- point that Al Capone is responsible for the exp- expiration date on milk. That's just yeah, crazy. And his, yeah. And his, bro- his brother invented his own soda pop, Green River. You probably heard of that. Oh, right? sure. You betcha. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, so these three guys are the six. Uh, we know three of the uh, three of the secret six with Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears, Robert McCormick, publisher of Chicago Tribune. Oh, man. And um, a guy named Jake Lingle. Uh, worked for the Commerce Commission. So the, after that, we aren't quite sure. A lot of guys have them death, but I, I, I was part of the Secret Six, and they're like, well, we got about the Secret 12 now, so we know they're not all the Secret Six. But these are the guys who, and again, your listeners know this, yeah. who really nailed Capone for tax evasion. Right. You know, which is the only thing, you know, again, that sounds crazy, right? I mean, the fact that you had to make uh, you know, $5,000 in, you know, 1931 to just even be taxed. Um, and here's Capone who made hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course he, he says, well, I'll make a deal. Um, I'll go to jail for two years for a hundred grand. You know, I didn't pay tax on it. And so he goes up for the deal. A guy named Judge Wilkerson says, no, no deal. And Capone, you know, is just thrown away. Well, Capone does it's what he always does. He bribes the jury. And then, okay, and then they find out and they switch the jury on him, you know, at the last minute. And they are not guys who were enamored with Capone. Capone had a $50,000 ring on his finger. He always had a white yeah. fedora. Very right. flashy guy. Um, these were downstate guys who were like farmers. And so they were like, no, this guy's evil. We're going to put him away. And they sent him away for 11 years for tax evasion. So. On October 17th, 1931, he was sentenced to 11 years. The, right. the World's Fair didn't open until 1933. So, right. Right. so this sentence was the pivotal point that allowed them to go forward with the World's Fair. If I'm, am I putting that together correctly? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because they really didn't believe. And again, there's so uh, much crap to World's Fairs. Yeah. And this fair, this fair was called the Century of Progress. Right. It, it was really supposed to be a history fair, but it changed to that. So they were investing all this money that they just didn't have, really, into this fair. And it, lo- it was looking like it would be a disaster. And, you know, Cabone's guys are just mowing all these people down. And so, you know, this was really, really the beginning of the end for Capone. You know, uh, in your book and some of the other things that I've seen, yes, those the Secret Six and the government and certain Law enforcement agencies were out to get Capone. But on the other hand, as far as I understand, he was relatively popular with the general public, maybe even a sort of a Michael Jordan popularity. Is that possible? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you have to re- I always tell people when I give this talk on Capone. You have to rethink the way you think of Capone. People yeah. do not view him the way we view him. We view him as this murdering gangster. People didn't view him like that. They view him like a celebrity. When you look at some old films of him going to court, he's mobbed, okay? I mean, he, he's, just, he's just mobbed. And this is because, you know, he a lot of times he would give money to people. I can't tell you how many times I've been in Barnes & Noble selling these books, and they always just sell out. People come in and go, you know, Al Capone is a great guy. He, you mean, wait a minute. Terrible. Wait a minute. You're at Barnes & Noble, right. and you're selling your book, and people are still right. coming up to you telling you that Al Capone's a great guy? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. God. 
I'll have, I mean, I've had more people come up and say, you know, he saved my family or, you know, my father, my father, he said my father's family. And, and what it is is Capone, uh, Chicago was broke. Okay. So Chicago had no money to help anybody during the great depression. Capone mm. opened up all these soup kitchens all over the South side. Wow. And everybody knew who was behind it. And, and, you know, and Capone would just, you'd be walking down the street and see somebody and give him a hundred dollars and, and everybody worked for Capone. I mean, he had tons of people on the payroll. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me also and said, yeah, I made bathtub gin during the Great Depression. You know, I mean, this is just something that people did. But this perception we have of just this murdering guy, that was not the perception. I mean, think about this, John. Today, if you went to somebody and said, bang, bang, Chicago, what would they say? And you Al know, Capone. Desert Island, they'd say, Al Capone, oh, of course. Right. Before the Internet. Okay, he understood uh. He understood mass media very early, very early, and he always tried to get good press, you know. And so, 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 you know, this, this is something hard for us to get our head around. But at this time, he was a celebrity. I always see pictures of him being taken. A lot of them in the courtroom with the judge. You know, everybody <laughs> went out a picture with Capone. That is crazy. So, when you're at one of these Barnes and Noble appearances, some guy who comes up to you and tells you about his mother dating Capone? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's a great story. So I'm, I'm at, you know, I'm in Barnes & Noble. This guy comes up and he goes, yeah, uh, yeah, my mom used to date Capone. <laughs> Older gentleman. And I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, she, she was a pretty hot number. I go, oh, I see. He goes, uh, yeah, they got in a big fight, though. I said, oh, what happened? He goes, well, these goons came and picked me up and took me to this bar. And this big, fat Italian guy slapped me around. I said, well, who was that? He goes, that was Al Capone. And I go, well, what was he like? He goes, oh, he's a nice guy. Nice guy. So, I mean, you know, where do you go with that, right? I mean, so this Al, is, this is... Al, Cap- Al Capone slapped this kid around? Yeah, he slapped this kid around. <laughs> and then I said to him later, I said, well, what do you think of Al? And he thought, oh, he's a nice guy. You know, and I mean, I- I've talked to so many people who, you know, I bumped into him. I talked to another person, a woman, whose husband was his dentist. And she said that, okay. All right, so what would happen is, everybody be in the waiting room. Capone would come in and with his, you know, henchmen, goons, and they'd walk right to the waiting room, pull whoever's in the chair out. All right, Capone would sit down. The guy would take out his gun, you know, his bodyguard. Put it out, put it on the table, and then the dentist would start to work, and the dentist would say, "This is going to hurt," and then the bodyguard would say, "This is going to hurt to Capone," and then the, the dentist would do his work, and then when he was done, they left with a big wad of money in an envelope, and then they left. Wow! Didn't even have to make an appointment. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. And I mean, here's the thing: a lot of people, again. Capone sort of exported this image of a, a believe it or not, a sort of family guy, guys who like, yeah. you know, big meals and things right. like that. And, you know, he, he did talk about getting out of the rackets, but he said, once you're in, you're in. I mean, here's a guy who ran Chicago from the Lexington Hotel, had a steel back chair so he could be assessed, had also an armor-plated uh, Cadillac, right? And, you yeah. know. Who, who knew he always had to keep moving. He could never stay on his, the first floor of his home in Cicero because somebody might come by, you know, and rake his home with a Tommy gun. Hey, William, well, it's uh, can I butt in here? Yeah, John? yeah, sure. we got a couple of minutes. Do it. William, quick question. You know, I'm struck by what you say about 
uh, Capone smarts. And I have read that if he had not had a life of crime, he could have done just about anything. Yeah, he he ran a huge operation. Uh, not only did he have to bring in all this alcohol, I mean, he had uh, rum runners coming in, he had planes coming in, he then had to distribute it, and he had this monstrous distribution network where all this booze had to go to all these different places, monies had to be collected. I mean, he was a very, very smart businessman, and he never took payment. He was he was smart enough to never you could never connect huh. him to the money, all right. Yet, yet he had this lavish lifestyle. Yeah. He moved out of the business, you know. But you know, so, so yeah, he he was smart. You know, he was he was able. He was this poor kid from Brooklyn, right? And yeah. he ended up moving to Chicago and moving in very quickly. And you know, he was brutal. He he did. Eliminate the competition, and you know, and St. Valentine's Day Massacre was really his mistake, right. you know, because that made it the pre- the president of the United States became aware of the problem, and they realized then that you know it had gotten out of hand, and that really came about because of that Thompson machine gun, which was you know General Thompson World War One wanted to kill Germans quicker, so he invented this gun. He called it the Annihilator. And, you know, when Capone's guys started using it, it just tore people to pieces. And so those crime scene photos, which are in the Chicago History Museum, I've seen, those are the ones that were splattered all over the pages. So yeah. wow. And, and that's, that really changed public perception. You think he would have known where interest rates are going here in the country? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody seems to know. <laughs> I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight, for the first time, that vault is going to be open live. Now, what if anything that vault contains? We don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together. It seems, at least up to now that we've struck out with the vault, I'm disappointed about that, as I'm sure you are. Oh, yes, we certainly are. Uh, 720 WGN 836 with John Landecker talking with author William Hazelgrove, who's got a great book called Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair. You know, we've referenced the Lexington Hotel, uh, which is at, was at 2135 South Michigan. And um, I guess you would say that that's, where Capone did a lot, oversaw most of his comings and goings and dealings. Would you say that's right? Oh, sort absolutely. Of, you yes. Know, and, uh, and, you know, going back to that clip uh, you were just <laughs> playing, Gerardo Rivera, um, it, it, this is a, a fascinating story. Um, actually, I met a guy named Alan Grafman, who actually was the producer of that, and uh, uh, we, we've been working together on, on something to do with the movie with the book. But, the reason Gerardo Her- did that was because, okay, Capone gets arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets sent to the Atlantic Penitentiary, but he has all these amenities, you know, all this furniture and stuff around it. People get mad. So they have him sent to Alcatraz. And Alcatraz is solitary confinement, no talking. Obviously, you can't escape. And Capone has syphilis, right? 
And syphilis, untreated, comes back in about 20, 30 years and starts to drive you insane. And so Capone starts to lose his memory. And what, what knowledge does he lose? He, he forgets where he has hidden all his money. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. And so, to, so, so Geraldo was convinced that money yeah. was in that vault. Oh, yeah. And, and to this day, you know, the legend of Al Capone's money is still out there. You know, I was working nights at a different radio station at that time, and I did a remote from the Lexington Hotel that night when Geraldo Rivera did his TV broadcast and opened the vault and found right. absolutely nothing. Maybe a empty bottle and a, I don't know. Some, like a Coke can or something. And, I mean, it was just, there was absolutely nothing in there. Although it was very interesting, when I was walking around the Lexington Hotel, you'd go into like, what could have been, I guess, like a ballroom, a large ballroom. And right. there were pockmarked walls where they had taken, I'm assuming they're Tommy guns, and just blasted the heck out of the, the walls in the hotel. It was yeah. uh, it was really something. You know, yeah. you, you mentioned the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and that was a game changer for Capone's image. But he was never really convicted of that, was he? No, he wasn't. Yeah, um, Machine Gun Kelly was sort of the guy who was held up who organized it, and the lo- the lore is that Capone was mad as hell that he did this because it it really heated heat up things. And you know, these were very desperate times. I think it's hard for people to understand, you know, what what these times were. You know, when the fair opened, Judy Garland was there. They said, oh, yeah. "Oh, Judy Garland," but she wasn't famous at all. She was there with her mother. All right. And they had this horrible singing and dancing act, her words, not mine. And and so she gets on a fight with her mother and it's very hot. And the fair opens and it's like 100 degrees. So she goes and leaves the fair and goes to the Biograph Theater. Why? Because it's air conditioned. She goes in. But in the lobby, she sees a man who she thinks she recognizes. It's the same mister thinking it's a movie star. Can I have your autograph? He says, sure, little lady. Gives it to her. Two hours later, he's shot dead in the alley. John Dillinger. Oh my gosh! Wow, never heard and that story. Oh yeah, and this is just you. I mean, these are all right. So you you've heard of Sally Rand, right? Oh I mean, yes, the, sure the, the, the fan dancer. Yeah, right. the fan okay. dancer. Well, she's, she's a hillbilly who bombed out in Hollywood. Uh, Cecil B. the Mills made some silent movies, but when talkies came with Al Jolson and all that, she bombed out because she had a, a lisp and an accent. Well, anyway. She ends up trying to audition for the World's Fair, and they go, sorry, we don't need you. So what she do? She gets a, a white horse. She gets a boat. Right? Now, <laughs> what you have to know is that the World's Fair is on what we call Norley Island today. Okay, yes. So it's not actually on. So this was great for the fair because they could do anything they wanted. Right? Well, so Sally Rand gets this boat, the horse has nothing on but this white makeup, takes it around the back to a yacht landing, right, in the opening night of the fair, all the mucky-mucks are there around a the stage. Yep, Sally yep. Rides through the fairgrounds, up onto the stage, <laughs> horse rears up, people take her, oh my God, it's the World's Fair, naked woman on a white horse. Uh, <laughs> they immediately arrest her, and then they immediately hire her. She becomes, and this is hard to believe, the number one financial attraction of the fair. John, she literally took the fair from the red into the black. And she, she would she would do her Sally Rand fan dance. That was the her act, was it not? Minutes. 
Right, yeah, it's, it's yeah. only 17 minutes. And you think, well, why did people go to see this? I'll tell you why. It's under a blue light. It was under so classical music. People could escape the depression for a little bit. Yeah. Men and women. I mean, we yeah. can escape into our television every night. People couldn't yeah. do that. But they, they could go see this. And she became instantly famous, world famous, and took her career 40 years all the way up to the Apollo astronauts where she danced for them at the opening of the Houston Coliseum. I, uh, uh, yeah. I re- that made a scene in, um, I think the movie was The Right Stuff. The Right Stuff, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, right. You know, mentioning the Depression and, and Al Capone and, and how smart he was. I mean, he was, you mentioned earlier that he was opening soup kitchens around oh, yeah. Chicago. And, you know, that was a time... Uh, as I understand it anyway, during the Depression, that people were very appreciative of folks who, I guess for lack of a better term, ran a charity like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he would give uh, money to people he would see on the street. Yeah. Uh, he was known to do that. And he really did employ lots of people. Another gentleman who came into Barnes & Noble said, you know, Al Capone saved my family. And I said, well, what house how, how He goes, well, my dad was a welder. And Al Capone needed people to weld his stills. So all of a sudden, Jeez. this big, dark car would pull up to the front of our house. Two guys got and go, we need you. And they take my dad away. And he'd go weld all these stills, and then they could bring him back. But he, 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 the guy did say it became very nerve-wracking for his father when these guys would show up and just take him away. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but no, the, the, the truth is that Capone had a code, all right? He, he did. I mean, he, you know, and the violence was re- restricted mostly to between the gangs, between yes. Malone's gang yeah. and his. So, yeah. so, you know, and he was very media savvy. He would give out lots of interviews. He, you know, he gave lots of money to politicians, obviously. Oh. He, you know, he, he, he bought a lot of people off. Um, you know, Robert McCormick was very reluctant to get into the Secret Six. And it really was a guy named Jake Lingle who got him in. Jake Lingle was a mob reporter, all right, for the Tribune. Yes. And, and so he, he, he came out, he was going to go play the races. He was walking, you know, at that time he went down to where Billy Goat's Tavern is and he's walking to the train. He gets shot in the back of the head and killed. And so McCormick said, that's it. Capone's trying to muzzle the press. Yeah. I'm going after him too. Right. And McCormick owned the Tribune, which of course was the press. So exactly. it exactly. obviously, uh, changed his mind about getting Capone out of the way and letting the 1933 World's Fair in. Well, <clears throat> William, I want to thank you so much for taking time tonight to be with us here at 720 WGN. Wow, what some amazing, just some amazing things. Maybe they're trivial, but the idea that Al Capone is responsible for the expiration date on milk on milk uh, containers just blows my mind. I mean... Yeah. Uh, that's uh, an unknown living legacy. I bet you when they did the Capone tours, do they still do Capone tours? I mean, they used yeah, to have. Yeah, a, yeah, they, yeah. Do. They, still, they still have those tours that go all over the city. Yeah, yeah. I bet they don't br- mention that, or maybe they do. I don't know. I've never taken yeah. the Capone tour. Uh, by the way, if you want to find out more about uh, Al Capone, and obviously you can tell that William Hegel knows what he's talking about. Uh, 
check out the book and where did I put the title of the book? What's the title the of the book? Known as the 1933 World's Fair. Yeah, or go to yeah. the website, williamhazelgrove.com, or just put in Al Capone, World's Fair. You know, all your listeners all probably read, you know, Eric Larson's book, Devil in the White City, which is yes. one reason I wrote this book, because yeah. I thought, wow, you know, this fair is amazing. And then I realized, wow, there was a second fair. 40 years later, Chicago yeah. did it again. Yeah. Thank you very much. All the best to you, William. Thanks for being with us. 720 WGN. Uh, that's the scene from The Untouchables where uh, Al Capone beats one of his henchmen over the head with a bat. Thought I'd just throw that in there. Uh, John Landecker at 720 WGN, 18 minutes after 8, talking to William Hazelgrove, author of a whole bunch of books, and one including the 1933 World's Fair and the end of the gangster era, and Al Capone, and what the city had to do to put on the World's Fair, because bad PR, you know, bad press, Capone. So we left off with me asking how they got rid of him, and you talking about the Secret Six. Yeah, so, now this, yeah. Yes, this is what most of your listeners don't know, because they've all yeah. seen the untouchable story. Right. Uh, in fact, it was six Chicago millionaires who got rid of them, and they banded together, and they created a secret police force. And the secret police force did things like they would take somebody who's going to testify against Capone and ship him down to South America. You know, oh, my God, a witness protection program, right? Well, this was one of the first. And or they had their own gangsters who we would today call informants, you know, who would get information on Capone's operation. And, and then they had their own speakeasies and, you know, where they sell booze and they got more information. And then they, they studied Capone's operation. And Capone was a smart man. I mean, he really was. He had a huge operation. He not only bottled uh, booze, he bottled milk. And by the way, for your listeners. Oh, Yeah. If you oh, check yeah. the date on your milk, okay, <laughs> that was Al Capone because he had a spoilage problem, so he started dating the milk, and that spread out and became industry standard. That is so, such a great trivial po- point that Al Capone is responsible for the exp- expiration date on milk. That's just yeah, crazy. And his, yeah. And his, bro- his brother invented his own soda pop, Green River. You probably heard of that. Oh, right? sure. You betcha. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, so these three guys are these six uh, we know three of the uh, three of the secret six was Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears, Robert McCormick, publisher of Chicago Tribune. Oh man! And, um, a guy named Jake Lingle uh, works for the Commerce Commission. So the, after that, we aren't quite sure. A lot of guys have them death, but I was part of the secret six, and they're like, "Well, we got about the secret twelve now, so we know they're not all the secret six. But these are the guys who, and again, your listeners know this. Yeah. who really nailed Capone for tax evasion. Right. You know, which is the only thing, you know, again, that sounds crazy, right? I mean, the fact that you had to make, uh, you know, $5,000 in, you know, 1931 to just even be taxed. Um, and here's Capone who made hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, of course, he, he says, well, I'll make a deal. Um, I'll go to jail for two years for hundred grand. You know, I didn't pay tax on it. And so he goes up for the deal. A guy named Judge Wilkerson says, no, no deal. And Capone, you know, is just thrown away. Well, Capone does it. So what he always does. He bribes the jury. And then, <laughs> okay, and then they find out, and they switch the jury on him, you know, at the last minute. And they are not guys who were enamored with Capone. Capone had a $50,000 ring on his finger. He always had a white yeah. fedora. 
very right. flashy guy. Um, these are downstate guys who were like farmers. And so they were like, no, this guy's evil. We're going to put him away. And they sent him away for 11 years for tax evasion. So on October 17th, 1931, he was sentenced to 11 years. The, right. the World's Fair didn't open until 1933. So, right. so this sentence was the pivotal point that allowed them to go forward with the World's Fair? Am I putting that together correctly? Yeah, exactly, exactly, because they really didn't believe, and again, there's so uh, much crap in World's Fairs, and yeah. this, fair, this fair was called the Century of Progress, Right, it was, it was really supposed to be a history fair, but it changed to that, so they were investing all this money that they just didn't have, really, into this fair, and it, lo- it was looking like it'd be a disaster. And you know, Cabone's guys are just mowing all these people down. And so, you know, this was really, really the beginning of the end for Capone. You know, uh, in your book and some of the other things that I've seen, yes, those the Secret Six and the government and certain law enforcement agencies were out to get Capone. But on the other hand, as far as I understand, he was relatively popular with the general public, maybe even a Sort of a Michael Jordan popularity? Is that possible? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Because, you know, you have to re- I always tell people I give this talk on Capone. You have to rethink the way you think of Capone. People yeah. do not view him the way we view him. We view him as this murdering gangster. People didn't view him like that. They view him like a celebrity. When you look at old films of him going to court, he's mobbed. Okay? I mean, he, he's, just, he's just mobbed. And this is because, you know... He, a lot of times he would give money to people. I can't tell you how many times I've been in Barnes and Noble selling these books. And they always just sell out. People come in and go, you know, Al Capone is a great guy. He, he mean, wait a minute. Terrible. Wait a minute. You're at Barnes and Noble right. and you're selling your book and people are still right. coming up to you telling you that Al Capone's a great guy. Oh yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. God. So, I'll have, I mean, I've had more people come up and say, you know, he saved my family or, you know, my father, my father, he said my father's family. And, and what it is, is Capone, uh, Chicago was broke. Okay. So Chicago had no money to help anybody during the great depression. Capone mm. opened up all these soup kitchens all over the South side. Wow. And everybody knew who was behind it. And, and, you know, and Capone would just, you'd be walking down the street and see somebody and give him a hundred dollars. And, and everybody worked for Capone. I mean, he had tons of people in the payroll. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me also and said, yeah, I made bathtub gin during the Great Depression. You know, I mean, this is just something that people did. But this perception we have of just this murdering guy, that was not the perception. I mean, think about this, John. Today, if you went to somebody and said, bang, bang, Chicago, what would they say? And you Al know, Capone. Desert Island, they'd say, Al Capone, oh, of course. Right. Before the Internet. Okay, he understood uh. He understood mass media very early, very early, and he always tried to get good press, you know. And so, 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 you know, this, this is something hard for us to get our head around. But at this time, he was a celebrity. I always see pictures of him being taken. A lot of them are in the courtroom with the judge. You know, everybody <laughs> wants to have a picture with Capone. <laughs> that is crazy. So, when you're at one of these Bards and Noble appearances, some guy who comes up to you and tells you about his mother dating Capone? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's a great story. So I'm, I'm at, you know, I'm in Barnes & Noble. This guy comes up and he goes, yeah, um, yeah, my mom used to date Capone. He's an older <laughs> gentleman. And I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, she, she was a pretty hot number. I go, oh, I see. 
He goes, uh, yeah, they got in a big fight, though. I said, oh, what happened? He goes, well, these goons came and picked me up and took me to this bar. And this big, fat Italian guy slapped me around. I said, well, who was that? He goes, that was Al Capone. And I go, well, what was he like? He goes, oh, he's a nice guy, nice guy. So, I mean, you know, where do you go with that, right? I mean, so this Al, is, this is... Al, Cap- Al Capone slapped this kid around? Yeah, he slapped this kid around. <laughs> and then I said to him later, I said, well, what do you think of Al? And he thought, oh, he's a nice guy, you know. And, I mean, I- I've talked to so many people who, you know, bumped into him. I talked to another person, a woman, whose husband was his dentist. And she said that, okay, all right, so what would happen is, Capone, right, everybody be in the waiting room, Capone would come in, and with his, you know, henchmen, goons, and yeah. they'd walk right to the waiting room, pull whoever's in the chair out, all right, Capone would sit down, the guy would take out his gun, you know, his bodyguard, put it out, put it on the table, and then the dentist would start to work, and the dentist would say, this is going to hurt, and then the bodyguard would say, this is going to hurt to Capone, and then the, the dentist would do his work, and then when he was done, they left with a big wad of money in an envelope, and then they left. Wow. Didn't even have to make an appointment. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. And I mean, here's the thing. A lot of people, again, Capone sort of exported this image of a, a believe it or not, a sort of family guy, guy who like, yeah. you know, big meals and things right. like that. And, you know, he, he did talk about getting out of the rackets, but he said, once you're in, you're in. I mean, here's a guy who ran Chicago from the Lexington Hotel, had a steel back chair so he could be assessed, had also an armor-plated uh, Cadillac, right? And, you yeah. know. Who, who knew he always had to keep moving. He could never stay on his, the first floor of his home in Cicero because somebody might come by, you know, and rake his home with a Tommy gun. Hey, William, well, it's uh, can I butt in here? Yeah, John? yeah, sure. we got a couple of minutes. Do it. William, quick question. You know, I'm struck by what you say about uh, Capone's smarts, and I have read that if he had not had a life of crime, he could have done just about anything. Yeah, he he ran a huge operation. Uh, not only did he have to bring in all this alcohol, I mean, he had uh, rum runners coming in, he had planes coming in, he then had to distribute it, and he had this monstrous distribution network where all this booze had to go to all these different places, monies had to be collected. I mean, he was a very, very smart businessman, and he never took payment. He was he was smart enough to never you could never connect huh. him to the money, all right. Yeah, yeah. How- he had this lavish lifestyle. Yeah. He moved out of the business, you know. But you know, so, so yeah, he he was smart. You know, he was he was able. He was this poor kid from Brooklyn, right? And yeah. he ended up moving to Chicago and moving in very quickly. And you know, he was brutal. He he did. Eliminate the competition, and you know, and St. Valentine's Day massacre was really his mistake, right? You know, because that made it the pre- the president of the United States became aware of the problem, and they realized then that you know it had gotten out of hand, and that really came about because of that Thompson machine gun, which was you know General Thompson World War One wanted to kill Germans quicker, so he invented this gun. He called it the Annihilator. And, you know, when Capone's guys started using it, it just tore people to pieces. And so those crime scene photos, which are in the Chicago History Museum, I've seen, 
those are the ones that were splattered all over the pages, so yeah. to speak. Wow. And, and that's, that really changed public perception. You think he would have known where interest rates are going here in the country? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> Nobody seems to know. <laughs> I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight, for the first time, that vault is going to be open live. Now, what, if anything, that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together. It seems... At least up to now that we've struck out with the vault. I'm disappointed about that, as I'm sure you are. Oh, yes, we certainly are. Uh, 720 WGN 836 with John Landecker talking with author William Hazelgrove, who's got a great book called Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair. You know, we've referenced the Lexington Hotel, uh, which is at, was at 2135 South Michigan. And um, I guess you would say that that's where Capone did a lot oversaw most of his comings and goings and dealings. Would you say that's right? Oh, sort absolutely. Of, you yes. Know, and, uh, and, you know, going back to that clip, uh, you're <laughs> just playing Gerardo Rivera. Um, it, it, this is a, a fascinating story. Um, actually I met a guy named Alan Grafman who actually was the producer of that. And, uh, uh, we, we've been working together on, on something to do with the movie with the book, but, the reason Gerardo Her- did that was because, okay, Capone gets arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets sent to the Atlantic Penitentiary, but he has all these amenities, you know, all this furniture and stuff around it. People get mad. So they have him sent to Alcatraz. And Alcatraz is solitary confinement, no talking. Obviously, you can't escape. And Capone has syphilis, right? And syphilis, untreated, comes back in about 20, 30 years and starts to drive you insane. And so Capone starts to lose his memory. And what, what knowledge does he lose? He, he forgets where he has hidden all his money. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. And so, to, so, so Geraldo was convinced that money yeah. was in that vault. Oh, yeah. And, and to this day, you know, the legend of Al Capone's money is still out there. You know, I was working nights at a different radio station at that time, and I did a remote from the Lexington Hotel that night when Geraldo Rivera did his TV broadcast and opened the vault and found right. absolutely nothing. Maybe a empty bottle and a, I don't know. Some, like a Coke can or something. And, I mean, it was just, there was absolutely nothing in there. Although it was very interesting, when I was walking around the Lexington Hotel, you'd go into like, what could have been, I guess, like a ballroom, a large ballroom. And right. there were pockmarked walls where they had taken, I'm assuming they're Tommy guns, and just blasted the heck out of the, the walls in the hotel. It was yeah. uh, it was really something. You know, yeah. you, you mentioned the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and that was a game changer for Capone's image. But he was never really convicted of that, was he? No, he wasn't. Yeah. Um, Machine Gun Kelly was sort of the guy who was held up who organized it. And the lore is that Capone was mad as hell that he did this because it, it really heated, heated up things. And, you know, these were very desperate times. I think it's hard for people to understand, you know, what, what these times were. You know, when the fair opened, Judy Garland was there. They said, oh, yeah. oh, Judy Garland. But she wasn't famous at all. She was there with her mother. All right. And they had this horrible singing and dancing act, her words, not mine. 
And and so she gets in a fight with her mother, and it's very hot. And the fair opens, and it's like 100 degrees. So she goes and leaves the fair and goes to the Biograph Theater. Why? Because it's air-conditioned. She goes in, but in the lobby, she sees a man who she thinks she recognizes. It says, hey, mister, thinking it's a movie star. Can I have your autograph? He says, sure, little lady. Gives it to her. Two hours later, he's shot dead in the alley. John Dillinger. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Never heard that story. Oh, yeah. And this is just, I mean, these are, all right, so you've heard of Sally Rand, right? Oh, yes, the the, the fan dancer. Yeah, the fan dancer. She's a hillbilly who bombed out in Hollywood. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille made some silent movies. But when talkies came with Al Jolson and all that, she bombed out because she had a, a lisp and an accent. Well, anyway, she ends up trying to audition for the World's Fair. And they go, sorry, we don't need you. So what she do? She gets a, a white horse. She gets a boat. Right? Now, <laughs> what you have to know is that the World's Fair is on what we call Norley Island today. Okay, yes. so it's not actually on. So this was great for the fair because they could do anything they wanted. All right. Well, so Sally Rand gets this boat, the horse has nothing on but this white makeup, takes it around the back to a yacht landing. All right, the opening night of the fair, all the mucky mucks are there around a the stage. Yep. Sally yep. Rides through the fairgrounds up onto the stage. <laughs> Horse rears up. People take her. Oh my God! It's the World's Fair. Naked woman on a white horse. Uh, they immediately arrest her, and then they immediately hire her. She becomes, and this is hard to believe, the number one financial attraction of the fair. John, she literally took the fair from the red into the black. And she, she would up, she would do her Sally Rand fan dance. That was the her act, was it not? Right, yeah, it's, it's only yeah. 17 minutes. And you think, well, why did people go to see this? I'll tell you why. It's under a blue light. It was under some classical music. People could escape the depression for a little bit. Yeah. Men and women. I mean, we yeah. could escape into our television every night. People couldn't yeah. do that. But they, they could go see this. And she became instantly famous, world famous, and took her career 40 years all the way up to the Apollo astronauts where she danced for them at the opening of the Houston Coliseum. I, uh, uh, yeah. I re- that made a scene in, um, I think the movie was The Right Stuff. The Right Stuff, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, right. You know, mentioning the Depression and, and Al Capone and, and how smart he was. I mean, he was, you mentioned earlier that he was opening soup kitchens around oh, yeah. Chicago. And, you know, that was a time... Uh, as I understand it anyway, during the Depression, that people were very appreciative of folks who, I guess for lack of a better term, ran a charity like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he would give uh, money to people he would see on the street. Uh, He was known to do that. And he really did employ lots of people. Another gentleman who came into Barnes & Noble said, you know, Al Capone saved my family. And I said, well, how how so? He goes, well, my dad was a welder. And Al Capone needed people to weld his stills. So all of a sudden, this big, dark car would pull up to the front of our house. Two guys got and go, we need you. And they take my dad away. And he'd go weld all these stills, and then they could bring him back. But he, 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 the guy did say it became very nerve-wracking for his father when these guys would show him and just take him away. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but no, the, the, the truth is that Capone had a code, 
All right. He, he did. I mean, he, you know, and the violence was re- restricted mostly to between the gangs, between yes. the Malone's gang yeah. and his. So, yeah. so, you know, and he was very media savvy. He would give out lots of interviews. He, you know, he gave lots of money to politicians, obviously. Oh. He, uh. You know, he, he, he bought a lot of people off. Um, you know, Robert McCormick was very reluctant to get into the secret six. And it really was a guy named Jake Lingle who got him in. Jake Lingle was a mob reporter, all right, for the Tribune. Yes. And, and so he 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 came out. He was going to go play the races. He was walking. You know, at that time, he went down to where Billy Goat's Tavern is, and he's walking to the train. He gets shot in the back of the head and killed. And so McCormick said, that's it. Capone's trying to muzzle the press. Yeah. I'm going after him, too. Right. And, and, and Lingle and, was and, on the take. And McCormick owned the Tribune, which, of course, was the press. So it obviously uh, changed his mind about getting Capone out of the way and letting the 1933 World's Fair in. Well, William, I want to thank you so much for taking time tonight to be with us here at 720 WGN. Wow, what some amazing, just some amazing things. Maybe they're trivial, but the idea that Al Capone is responsible for the expiration date on milk a milk uh, container is just blows my mind. I mean, yeah. uh, that's uh, an unknown living legacy. I bet you when they did the Capone tours, do they still do Capone tours? I mean, they used yeah, to have. Yeah, a, yeah they do. Yeah. They, still, they still have those tours that go all over the city. Yeah, yeah. I bet they don't br- mention that, or maybe they do. I don't know. I've never taken yeah. the Capone tour. Uh, by the way, if you want to find out more about uh, Al Capone. And obviously, you can tell that William Heligrove knows what he's talking about. Uh, check out the book. And where did I put the title of the book? What's the title oh, of the I book? Found in the 1933 World's Fair. Yeah, or go to my yeah. website, williamhazelgrove.com, or just put in Al Capone, World's Fair. You know, all your listeners all probably read, you know, Eric Larson's book, Devil in the White City, which is yes. one reason I wrote this book, because yeah. I thought, wow, you know, this fair is amazing. Then I realized, wow, there was a second fair. 40 years later, Chicago yeah. did it again. Yeah. Thank you very much. All the best to you, William. Thanks for being with us. I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight, for the first time, that vault is going to be open live. Now, what, if anything, that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together. (laughs) It seems, at least up to now, that we've struck out with the vault. I'm disappointed about that, as I'm sure you are. Oh, yes, we certainly are. Uh, 720 WGN 836 with John Landecker talking with author William Hazelgrove, who's got a great book called Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair. You know, we've referenced the Lexington Hotel, uh, which is at, was at 2135 South Michigan. And um, I guess you would say that that's where Capone did a lot, oversaw most of his comings and goings and dealings. Would you say that's right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. yes. And, uh, and, you know, going back to that clip uh, you were just playing, Gerardo Rivera, um, it, it, this is a, a fascinating story. Um, actually, I met a guy named Alan Grafman, who actually was the producer of that, and uh, 
uh, we we've, we've been working together on, on something to do with the movie with the book. But the reason Geraldo Her- did that was because okay, Capone gets arrested, mm-hmm. um, he gets sent to the Atlantic Penitentiary, but he has all these amenities, you know, all this furniture and stuff around. And people get mad, so they have him sent to Alcatraz, and Alcatraz is solitary confinement, no talking. Obviously, you can't escape. And Capone has syphilis, right? And syphilis, untreated, comes back in about 20, 30 years and starts to drive you insane. And so Capone starts to lose his memory. And what, what knowledge does he lose? He, he forgets where he has hidden all his money. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. And so, to, so, so Geraldo was convinced that money yeah. was in that vault. Oh, yeah. And, and to this day, you know, the legend of Al Capone's money is still out there. You know, I was working nights at a different radio station at that time, and I did a remote from the Lexington Hotel that night when Geraldo Rivera did his TV broadcast and opened the vault and found right. absolutely nothing. Maybe a empty bottle and a, I don't know. Some, like a Coke can or something. Yeah, I mean, it was just, there was absolutely nothing in there. Although it was very interesting, when I was walking around the Lexington Hotel, you'd go into like, what could have been, I guess, like a ballroom, a large ballroom. And right. there were pockmarked walls where they had taken, I'm assuming they're Tommy guns, and just blasted the heck out of the, the walls in the hotel. It was yeah. uh, it was really something. You know, yeah. you, you mentioned the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and that was a game changer for Capone's image. But he was never really convicted of that, was he? No, he wasn't. Yeah. Um, Machine Gun Kelly was sort of the guy who was held up who organized it. And the lore is that Capone was mad as hell that he did this because it, it really heated, heated up things. And, you know, these were very desperate times. I think it's hard for people to understand, you know, what, what these times were. You know, when the fair opened, Judy Garland was there. They said, oh, yeah. oh, Judy Garland. But she wasn't famous at all. She was there with her mother. All right. And they had this horrible singing and dancing act. Her words, not mine. And and so she gets on a fight with her mother. And it's very hot. And the fair opens and it's like 100 degrees. So she goes and leaves the fair and goes to the Biograph Theater. Why? Because it's air conditioned. She goes in. But in the lobby, she sees a man who she thinks she recognizes. So it's a mister thinking it's a movie star. Can I have your autograph? He goes, sure, little lady. Gives it to her. Two hours later, he's shot dead in the alley. John Dillinger. Oh my gosh! Wow, never heard and that story. Oh yeah, and this is just you. I mean, these are all right. So you you've heard of Sally Rand, right? Oh I yes, mean, the, sure the, the fan dancer. Yeah, right. the fan okay. dancer. Well, she's, she's a hillbilly who bombed out in Hollywood. Uh, Cecil B. the Mills made some silent movies, but when talkies came with Al Jolson and all that, she bombed out because she had a, a lisp and an accent. Well, anyway. She ends up trying to audition for the World's Fair, and they go, sorry, we don't need you. So what she do? She gets a, a white horse. She gets <laughs> a boat. <right>? Now, <laughs> what you have to know is that the World's Fair is on what we call Norley Island today. Okay, yes. So it's not actually on. So this was great for the fair because they could do anything they wanted. Right? Well, so Sally Rand gets this boat, the horse, has nothing on but this white makeup, takes it around the back to a yacht landing, right, the opening night of the fair, all the mucky-mucks are there around a stage. Yep, yep. Rides through the fairgrounds, 
up onto the stage. Horse rears up. People take and show. Oh my God! It's a World Fair. Naked woman on a white horse. Uh, they immediately arrest her, and then they immediately hire her. She becomes, and this is hard to believe, the number one financial attraction of the fair. John, she literally took the fair from the red into the black. And she, she would up, she would do her Sally Rand fan dance. That was the her act, was it not? Minutes. Right, yeah. It's it's only yeah. seventeen minutes. And you think, well, why did people go to see this? I'll tell you why. It's under a blue light. It was under some classical music. People could escape the depression for a little bit. Yeah. Men and women. I mean, we yeah. can escape into our television every night. People couldn't yeah. do that. But they, they could go see this. And she became instantly famous, world famous, and took her career 40 years all the way up to the Apollo astronauts, where she danced for them at the opening of the Houston Coliseum. I, uh, uh, yeah. I, that made a scene in, um, I think the movie was The Right Stuff. The Right Stuff, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, right. You know, mentioning the Depression and, and Al Capone and, and how smart he was, I mean, he was, you mentioned earlier that he was opening soup kitchens around oh, yeah. Chicago. And, you know, that was a time, uh, as I understand it anyway, during the Depression, that people were very appreciative of folks who, I guess for lack of a better term, ran a charity like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he would give uh, money to people he would see on the street. Yeah. Uh, he was known to do that. And he really did employ lots of people. Another gentleman who came into Barnes and Noble said, "You know, Al Capone saved my family." And I said, "Well, what house? How how?" He goes, "Well, my dad was a welder, and Al Capone needed people to weld his stills. So all of a sudden, Jeez. this big dark car would pull up to the front of our house. Two guys got and go. We need you, and they take my dad away, and he'd go weld all these stills, and then they could bring him back." But he, 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 the guy did say it became very nerve-wracking for his father when these guys would show him and just take him away. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but no, the, the, the truth is that Capone had a code, all right? He, he did. I mean, he, you know, and the violence was re- restricted mostly to between the gangs, between yes. the Malone's gang yeah. and his. So, yeah. so, you know, and he was very media savvy. He would give out lots of interviews. He, you know, he gave lots of money to politicians, obviously. Oh. He, you know, he, he, he bought a lot of people off. Um, you know, Robert McCormick was very reluctant to get into the Secret Six. And it really was a guy named Jake Lingle who got him in. Jake Lingle was a mob reporter, all right, for the Tribune. Yes. And, and so he, he, he came out. He was going to go play the races. He was walking. You know, at that time, he went down to where Billy Goat's Tavern is, and he's walking to the train. He gets shot in the back of the head and killed him. And so McCormick said, that's it. Capone's trying to muzzle the press. Yeah. I'm going after him, too. Right. And, 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 was on the take. and McCormick owned the Tribune, which, of course, was the press. So exactly. it exactly. obviously... Uh, changed his mind about getting Capone out of the way and letting the 1933 World's Fair in. Well, William, I want to thank you so much for taking time tonight to be with us here at 720 WGN. Wow, what some amazing, just some amazing things. Maybe they're trivial, but the idea that Al Capone is responsible for the expiration date on milk milk, uh, containers just blows my mind. I mean... 
Uh, that's uh, an unknown living legacy. I bet you when they did the Capone tours, do they still do Capone tours? I mean, they used yeah, to have yeah. a... Yeah, they do. Yeah. They, still, they still have those tours that go all over the city, yeah. Yeah, I bet they don't br- mention that. Or maybe they do, I don't know. I've never taken yeah. the Capone tour. Uh, by the way, if you want to find out more about uh, Al Capone, and obviously you can tell that William Heathrow knows what he's talking about, uh, check out the book. And where did I put the title of the book? What's the title oh, of the I book? Found in the 1933 World's Fair. Yeah, or go to yeah. my website, williamhazelgrove.com, or just put in Al Capone, World's Fair. You know, all your listeners all probably read, you know, Eric Larson's book, Devil in the White City, which is yes. one reason I wrote this book, because yeah. I thought, wow, you know, this fair is amazing. And then I realized, wow, there was a second fair. Forty years later, Chicago yeah. did it again. Yeah. Thank you very much. All the best to you, William. Thanks for being with us.